Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week I discussed the dichotomy that the Buddha made between skillful and unskillful thoughts that can motivate actions. We also saw that a life based on the unskillful pursuit of sensual pleasure and avoiding pain will have its pleasures, but will inevitably be disappointing. The Buddha tells us that, and modern science confirms it. I also discussed the dichotomy that the Buddha made between mundane experience and supramundane joy and delight that comes from continuous practice of what is skillful, namely renunciation, kindness, and wisdom, and how virtue trends towards the serenity that forms the basis of our meditation practice. Moreover, the Buddha tells us that this supramundane experience is greater than mere sensual pleasures. Most of our mundane and unskillful thoughts register as emotional drives that have come through evolution from or through our ape ancestors. But we have undergone a huge evolutionary change since then, one that has made us profoundly more social and cooperative than our ape ancestors. And such changes inevitably entail a new set of motivational drives. We can actually live our life on a different basis, and if we choose, an entirely different basis. In fact, this is the Buddhist ideal, and I'll bet my bowl this is where the supramundane experiences come from. In past talks, we've discussed moral communities as common in human society. Your bowling team is probably a moral community. In our ancestral environment, local tribes, generally up to 150 individuals, would have each formed a moral community that cooperated in hunting and gathering and infrastructure, eventually turning into agriculture. Military combat units are probably among the tightest moral communities, at least in times of crisis. Now, they're called moral communities not because they always serve an ethical or virtuous purpose, but because they follow a moral code of right and wrong that puts everybody on the same page. Motorcycle gangs and most churches are moral communities as are fans at sporting events for the short term as long as they're rooting for the same team. The human emotional drives that motivate activities in moral communities are typically quite distinct from ape drives involved in the individual pursuit of chocolate mousse. Team spirit can be quite palpable, 
eclipsing self-interested urges, special kindness and affection for other members result in encouragement, care if another member gets sick, and so on. Among the Amish, as I understand it, if a farmer needs a barn or a house, he invites neighbors to build it together for free. Sustained positive emotions shared among the members drive cooperative action. We feel safe to be a non-self in a moral community because as we aid and sustain others, they are doing the same for us. We don't easily become a doormat. In contrast, the emotions driving sensual pursuits are short-lived, wobbly, and individualized. My gain may be the other's loss. Team spirit and the kindness and affection that come with it are certainly human adaptations, reflecting the later evolution away from our ape ancestors. Unfortunately, there is much less research on social emotions than on individual motivations. Individualists are hesitant to acknowledge these emotions, but when they are pointed out, everybody recognizes their presence. I would venture to guess that team spirit and the associated positive emotions don't trigger an adjustment of the hedonic setting in individuals toward pain the way the enjoyment of chocolate mousse does. Moments of crisis bring out the cooperative emotions and impulses particularly effectively, even beyond the bounds of a moral community. Notably, strangers will risk their lives for strangers, almost without thought under dire circumstances. Humans even experience the selfless acts of others vicariously. Elicited descriptions of emotional responses to such moral beauty include phrases like open, warm, glowing, chills, choking up, warm feeling in the heart, calm. People describe a desire to do good deeds, but unfortunately studies show that the vicarious form of this experience does not actually seem to make people behave differently. They just like watching others do so. It's also pointed out that people who take ethics classes in college don't end up behaving more ethically, and that books on ethics are more likely to be stolen proportionally than most other books. Why doesn't society consist entirely of moral communities if they're so great? There seem to be three reasons. Freeloaders, competition from other moral communities, and competition from coercive relationships. Recall that each member of the moral community has an inner ape with an ape's self-interest. Accordingly, Fred on your bowling team might accept a bribe from a rival team to have a bad day. Generally, this will be rare in an exclusive moral community. People will tend to exclude themselves from a community if the standards of the community are high 
and there is no coercive pressure to join the community. The Sangha and the Amish are both like that. In fact, the Amish give young people an opportunity to opt out by encouraging them to live among the English, as they call them, in New York or Boston for a couple of years before deciding if they want to live their lives as Amish. This is clever because it sidesteps the coercive social pressure children of Amish families will have naturally grown up with. I was looking up information on the Amish preparing for this talk, and I was struck by what oddities they are right from the 19th century, reading about the Amish and wondering if they feel out of place when they go into English towns, it suddenly occurred to me what oddities we monks are right from the 5th century B.C. That tells me Amish probably don't think about it much. In our ancestral environment, tribes were quite competitive with one another. Chimps and humans are apparently the only species on Earth in which a party will raid another tribe or group of the same species and even kill members of that other tribe. That tribalism is primarily a masculine behavior that is with us to this day. Internally, a moral community can be cooperative and feel uplifted by positive social emotions, even a swarm of Nazis yet be aggressively tribal in their behavior externally. Combat units experience such communal bonding to such an extent that retired soldiers, in spite of being shot and blown up, think back fondly on their gun-toting days as the high point in their lives. The Buddha was very sensitive to these tribal tendencies. He lived in the Axial Age, when societies were becoming more complex with the growth of agriculture and trade and there was greater need for cooperation between distinct groups and tribes. In fact, the Sangha itself welcomed new members from all castes and circumstances, but required that they give up their previous identities. Buddhist ethical practices do not distinguish one group from another and to a large group, not even an animal from a human. For instance, the practice of kindness, metta, is to be developed until it falls on all equally, even miscreants. Coercive relations are very corrosive to the positive emotions that arise in cooperative communities. This is because fear becomes the primary motivating emotion. One does not feel cared for by the community, and the self asserts itself in defensive mode. Most of our social and political problems probably come from ways individuals find out of ape self-interest to forge coercive relations in a social environment, often on a large scale. The Buddha lived in a society where these relations were much simpler and less obscure than in our society. However, recognizing 
that as we assume different social roles, our relations are asymmetrical. The Buddha showed how to fulfill six sets of reciprocal relations in the Sigalovada Sutta as six spatial coordinates. In five ways, a child should minister to his parents as the East. Having supported me, I shall support them. I shall do their duties. I shall keep the family tradition. I shall make myself worthy of my inheritance. Furthermore, I shall offer alms in honor of my departed relatives. In five ways, the parents thus ministered to as the East by their children show their compassion. They restrain them from evil. They encourage them to do good. They train them for a profession. They arrange a suitable marriage. At the proper time, they hand over their inheritance to them. In five ways, a pupil should minister to a teacher as the South. By rising from his seat in salutation, by attending to him, by eagerness to learn, by personal service, by respectful attention while receiving instructions. In five ways do teachers thus ministered to as the South by their pupils show their compassion. They train them in the best discipline. They see that they grasp their lessons well. They instruct them in the arts and sciences. They introduce them to their friends and associates. They provide for their safety in every quarter. In five ways should a wife as the West be ministered to by a husband, by being courteous to her, by appreciating her, by being faithful to her, by handing over authority to her, by providing her with adornments. The wife thus ministered to as the West by her husband shows her compassion to her husband in five ways. She performs her duties well. She is hospitable to relations and attendants. She is faithful. She protects what she brings. She is skilled and industrious in discharging her duties. In five ways should a clansman minister to his friends and associates as the North by liberality, by courteous speech, by being helpful, by being impartial, by sincerity. The friends and associates thus ministered to as the North by a clansman show compassion to him in five ways. They protect him when he is heedless. They protect his property when he is heedless. They become a refuge when he is in danger. They do not forsake him in his troubles. They show consideration for his family. In five ways should a master minister to his servants and employees as the nadir, by assigning them work according to their ability, by supplying them with food 
and with wages, by tending to them in sickness, by sharing with them any delicacies, by granting them leave at times. Compare this with how the railroads treat their employees. The servants and employees thus ministered to as the nader by their master show their compassion to him in five ways. They rise before him, they go to sleep after him, they take only what is given, they perform their duties well, they uphold his good name and fame. In five ways should a householder minister to ascetics and Brahmins as the zenith, by lovable deeds, by lovable words, by lovable thoughts, by keeping open house to them, by supplying their material needs. The ascetics and Brahmins thus ministered to as the zenith by a householder show their compassion toward him in six ways. They restrain him from evil, they persuade him to do good, they love him with a kind heart, they make him hear what he has not heard, they clarify what he has already heard, they point out the path to a heavenly state. The point is that if the reciprocal relation is out of balance, as when employees or wives are simply treated as property, the relationship thereby becomes exploitive. As long as all parties fulfill their responsibilities, these relations fit well within moral communities with a spirit of teamwork. It has been said that getting rid of or reducing the self is always a spiritual experience. Buddhist practice, of course, serves to directly dismantle the self, which tends to make successful practitioners fall easily into moral communities. In fact, it makes practitioners feel like they are always in a moral community all the time, even when they're not, and that they are enjoying all the heartfelt, warm, glowing chills experienced in such a community. There's more to say about the human sociocultural way of being and experiencing. Much of this is related to the very symbolic nature of social cognition, which gives rise to myth, the sacred ritual and devotion. These things are generally regarded as religious, which may be why there is a strong tendency for many of us to dismiss them, but actually they are as present in secular life as in religious life. Food for next week's podcast.